Hello and welcome to this episode of Epochs, where we shall be talking all about the Anglo-Zulu War of the 19th century. And I am joined by Nick Hughes. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks. And uh, hello to everybody watching. Yeah, the thanks for your time. Um, and uh, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting topic, this. There's, there's quite a lot to say about it, even though in the grand scheme of, of the history of war, it's quite a small affair, I think. Nonetheless. It's six months, is it? Tops? Sorry? It takes. It takes place over six months. Right, yeah, six or seven months, yeah. And like the casualties, in, again, in the scheme of things, aren't very big and all that sort of thing. But it's, it's, uh, it's got all sorts of cultural repercussions because where we're going to talk about the Anglo-Zulu War, which took place in like the uh, 1878 to 79, mainly in 1879, um, there's the film Zulu and also Zulu Dawn. Um, mm. uh, and so we're going to just talk about everything to do with this topic. Um, mm. So. Uh, I thought maybe if it's all right with you, I could sort of just do a few quick minutes, yeah, just absolutely. sort of setting up the sort of the background to it. Um, so very quickly, because we want to get onto the events of, of that year yeah. and the, the famous battles. Um, well, uh, Europeans have been sailing around the, the Cape, the bottom of Africa there since sort of the 14th, 15th century. It wasn't until the, uh, the, the very, very early 19th century, the Napoleonic era, when Britain uh, relieved the Dutch of control of the Cape, basically. <laughs> and over the next few decades, uh, we get more and more traders in there, more and more missionaries and things. And in the end, it became the, uh, the Cape Colony or Natal. Um, mm. And so by the 1870s, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd basically sort of, without even really trying as such, that's the story of the British Empire in all sorts of ways, isn't it? Without even mm. really explicitly oh, yeah. trying, just pushed more and more inland until we come up against the sort of the biggest, most powerful tribe in South Africa, which was the Zulu. And they'd, they'd um, consolidated their power in the last few centuries, going back to the great Shaka Zulu himself. Mm. Uh, but by the 1870s, they were a little bit, so I'll put a map up so everyone can see, they're sort of sandwiched between the Boer republics and Natal. Mm. Um, and so that's sort of, in a very, very, very brief nutshell, where we find mm. ourselves. Um, yes. And so if you want to say any, oh, any words on One thing about Shaka as well is that he was relatively new. The Zulus were uh, a tribe. They were rivaling the Bantus in the region. Um, and they, were, they did have a kind of military culture, but it wasn't as advanced or as sophisticated until Shaka came along. And that's 1800 to 1820. So he's only 60 years gone um, by the time of the Zulu Wars. He really does revolutionize the, uh, the Zulu fighting spirit uh, and the tactics, you know, the famous, which we'll get to, the famous bull head tactic is an invention of Shaka's. And that, so the thing is, he's still within living memory of the eldest Zulu tribes and of some of the eldest uh, Boers and British settlers that that, that he still he's, his shadow is still lingering and yeah. um, people think he was like hundreds of years ago before the Zulu war no he wasn't he was only 60 70 years before I've heard somebody say I think this is a bit of an exaggeration but it still gives a good impression that uh, Shaka sort of reorganized Zulu society on some level uh, Along uh, some of uh, in the vein of the Spartans, in other words, yeah. nothing really like the ancient Greek Spartans, but but 
all boys, all men, from sort of as soon as you're big and strong enough, from you know the age of fifteen or sixteen or so, you're expected to become a warrior on some level. Mm. Uh, if you're if your great chieftain asks you to, you're expected to fight for him. Uh, one thing to say straight off the bat: the leader of the Zulu is a chap called Kachuwayu. So he'll be the mm. leader all throughout this story. Is is Kachuwayu? Mm. Um, and so one of the things to say is that. It was, it, you know, the, the Spartan thing is maybe a bit overblown, but it certainly was a martial society, wasn't it? Um, it, it certainly was, was very this martial. A, this is a kind of um, bubbling under the surface that calls for the war itself. Because what you have is that it's a very sophisticated martial society. And the British and the Boers treat the Zulus with quite a lot of respect in that period between... Um, when they make contact, I think it, between 1810 and 1820, and between the Zulu War, there's a kind of respect. You don't want to mess with these guys. You know, you get caught out, they will absolutely uh, destroy you. And so the British government, we'll, we'll probably get to this more detail, but the British government back in London do not want to poke the hornet's nest. Mm, mm. Um, but the people on the ground in Natal are going to poke it for reasons. Um, but the, th the thing is, so, so the British treat the Zulus with quite a bit of respect and um, deservedly so. And we see how, how this plays out in the war when you have the advanced technological army versus the highly sophisticated, very well-organized, extremely well-motivated and determined um, technological inferior. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of asymmetric. In that way, no, absolutely. I mean, that is one of the things. Just like the the real reality reality of it, right off the bat, um, they've they've just got spears, and mm. uh, we've got the Martini Henry rifle, <laughs> we've got cannon, mm. we've got uh, you know all sorts. But of we've things. got cavalry as well, mm. right? Yeah, they they're don't not, need it. Yeah, they're not really mounted, are they? No, or, or at all. I mean, maybe a chieftain will have a horse, but that horse will be captured from an enemy. It won't be one that they've reared themselves for the purpose. But then the, the Zulu army is trained to run from battlefield to battlefield. It's a bit like the Greeks. Again, we're going back to the Spartan Greek thing of running to the mm. battle, fighting a battle, having just a brief rest, and then running to the next battle. Mm. They, mm. Their, their speed on foot is incredible. Mm. Yeah, someone said, uh, I can't remember where the quote is, uh, but it's an actual quote from the time. Um, uh, maybe it's in the film Zulu where it says, how far can you march? And they said, oh, you know, we can do 15, 20 miles. And they say, the Zulu do 50 <laughs> yeah. in a day. Um, but um, well, it's one thing, actually, just to mention about that the Zulus have only got spear. They do have, again, it was from um, uh, a quote from the time that they do have, I think it was from Chelmsford himself, said that they do have some muskets. And uh, occasionally they might, they did actually end up capturing a few Martini Henry rifles and things, but you know, not very many, and they're not no. great shots with them exactly. So, yeah, you, it's very true. It's absolutely true to say it's asymmetrical um, on the technological side of things. Uh, but they've got numbers because we were never there in giant, giant numbers. No. Um, so, one thing to say then, just to set it up, is sort of the causes for the war. Um, our Prime Minister at the time was Disraeli, Benjamin Disraeli. And um, I think it's fair to say we're sort of the higher Victorian period, isn't it? The late 70s, late 1870s. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, it, Disraeli said in Parliament, he said something like, um, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, never before has England been so powerful. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's various uh, zeniths of the British Empire, and you can argue when they were, um, sort of perhaps before we lost the Americas. But this is um, one of them in the, in the sort of the 1870s, 1880s, 90s, where you could say, you could argue perhaps the British Empire is at one of its zeniths. And uh, we were just extremely confident. And we hadn't really had uh, any sort of giant, massive humiliations and losses. And that's, that's, mm. what, what, that's one of the sort of takeaway headlines of the, the Anglo-Zulu War is that we are humbled for one of the first times. Yeah. I, I think what you have is in the aftermath of the Indian Mutiny and the Crimean War, it shows a lot of flaws in the empire and in the British army in particular. The, the, Navy, the Royal Navy just seems to coast through the period at a level of peak efficiency. But the army, the, at the end of the Crimean War and the Indian Mutiny, there are problems with the army. And that's like the and 1850s, just to say. 1850s. So, but, so what happens is there's a big effort. A new generation of officers kind of come to the fore, of which Sir Garnet Wolsey is perhaps the most famous uh, and most effective. But they come in the aftermath of clearing out uh, Lord Raglan, the Earl of Cardigan, all those old guards of um, generals. Um, I think the purchase system for officer ranks is abolished in this time. The, um, there's more emphasis on the technical departments, the engineering, the logistics, the artillery. They're not seen as you know, unfashionable. This is where the poor, the poor officers go to, to have a, a military career. There's more emphasis the, um, down the road from where I live, Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, that's in full swing. Um, and so the British Army goes through this period of restructuring and improvement. The old um, muzzle-loaded muskets go, it's replaced with um, a kind of interim breech-loading musket before going to the Martini Henry, I think, in the late 1860s. And so it's all coming together. And also the administration of the empire is going through a, uh, a change after the Indian mutiny. Um, Canada becomes a dominion in the 1860s, and that's seen as the model of how the empire is going to go. All these little provinces are going to get consolidated. They're going to have a, um, a different government style system to make, make the empire more efficient. So in the 1870s, I would say the empire is working not just military, militarily efficient, but administratively it's efficient. Mm. Mm. And so this is the backdrop. And now we have in the South African colonies a very ambitious chancellor of a governor. And he sees Cap, so Bartle Freer sees Canada and he says, I want to be, to be the guy for South Africa. What, I can't remember who the, um, he's the guy who had his hat, uh, statue vandalized, I think, last year. Oh, uh, yeah, I can't remember who. It, it's, that, it's that governor who is the first governor of a dominionized Canada. And so Bartle Freer, who we'll talk about, is, he's got similar ambitions. Okay, yeah, so just to set up the leadership then, catch away as the leader of the Zulus, we've got obviously Queen Victoria at the head of everything, but um, <laughs> the great queen, the queen of all Africa, um, the Empress, uh, and then uh, Disraeli, <laughs> Disraeli obviously as, as PM. But on the ground there, sort of the two leaders, you mentioned there, Sir Bartle Frey, who's sort of the political 
uh, overlord in Natal, and the, the military man, uh, the, the Lord General, the Lord Chelmsford, um, who's, you know, he's the, the head military man. So between him and uh, Henry Bartle Freer, they're the sort of the, they're, they're the guys that sort of make all these decisions, aren't they? And so let's so, get into yeah. it. I mean, why was it that we lived, we seem to have lived uh, quite peacefully for, for decades right next to Zululand and uh, the, the frontier was the Buffalo River? Uh, why was it that we lived really quite peacefully, it seems, more or less anyway, next to the Zulu for a long time? And suddenly, well, it wasn't suddenly exactly, but, you know, uh, it seems like we sort of manufacture a case of belly against them. What, what are mm. your thoughts and feelings about, about that well, episode? Well, it's, it's in the wake of, as I said, the Canada becoming a dominion. And that goes very successfully and a peaceful transition from the provinces to the dominion. Um, and so, so Bartle Freer, uh, Henry Bartle Freer has a similar idea. But what he's got, he's got the mostly English Cape Colony. He's got uh, Natal and the Orange Free State, which Natal is 50-50 Boer and uh, English. Orange Free State is predominantly Boer. And then the fourth part is Zululand. And he has an idea, okay, we'll have all four of them united. Now, at the time, Orange Free State was um, and Natal were going through economic hardships. So they were kind of amenable to the idea, yeah, we'll have the, the richer cape subsidizing us. Um, if we come together. But uh, I think it was Freer's predecessor. I can't remember the name of the guy, but in the 1860s, he was saying, you can't have the Zulus, you can't have this armed militaristic nation on our doorstep, you know, these savages, um, that's that his words, not mine, but you can't have them. Was it Lord uh, Carnarvon, you know, possibly? Hmm? Was it Lord Carnarvon? No, was it, was it Lord Carnarvon? I can't, can't remember the guy's name. Um, but Frizz kind of get buying into this. No, we can't have this armed all warrior nation on our doorstep because what happens when you have a highly militarized nation where every male is a warrior and there's no war? And this kind of the British thinking is at some point they're going to want, you know, the, all that pent up militarism and testosterone is going to burst. <laughs> and it's going to burst into our borders. So why don't we do a preemptive strike? Mm. Mm. However, this is a huge misreading of the Zulus and the Zulu Code of Honour because they'd given the government in London assurances that they weren't going to kick off. And mm. they hadn't kicked off. Apart from some skirmishes with some Boer settlers, they had not come together as an entire nation to attack its neighbours. And so the, the Zulu sense of honor, your, your man, your queen said we could exist as our kingdom. We're keeping that end of the bargain and London's keeping that end of the bargain. And this is the thing, Bartle Freer and Chelmsford want this war to be over before London can react. Mm -hmm. This is a huge driver because London, the government, the colonial office is highly likely to say, you are not doing this. Mm -hmm. you, we are not going to go to war with the, with the best African kingdom. We're not doing this. Mm. You know, so, um, yeah, because no. there have been some oh, 1860s with the Maoris as well. That, 
that was a close run affair for a while. Um, mm. We did again, not a lot of British soldiers, but a very highly motivated Maori army. And so I think Disraeli was off the idea. He was kind of in the Asian seventy. He, he wanted to kind of consolidate and be peaceful and expand the empire diplomatically, rather than you know sending troops on the ground. So there is this thing that there is this rift between uh, Cape Town and London. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Disraeli uh, wasn't sort of a, a crazed imperialist. <laughs> um, mm. um, well, of course, he was an imperialist, but you know, he wasn't. Uh, chomping at the bit to try and dominate Zululand. It wasn't like that at all. You're absolutely right. Um, let's get mm. into some of the, the detail, the mechanics of uh, how Bartle Freer sort of uh, makes it happen. Because they, they, there's the idea of, you know, finding a reason for war, a catus belli. So there, there were, I think the Zulus did, there was a story, I think it's true, that the Zulus had been sort of uh, executing some people, in a sort of, as far as we're concerned, in an, in an extrajudicial sense um i think even some of them sort of within sight of the missionary post at rook's drift um mm. but anyway the the bartle freer sort of basically says to the zulus um you know i don't think we can allow you to uh sort of uh exist using your own sense of the rule of law um the mm. kachawayu is um well he tried to frame him or did frame him as sort of a, 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 a tyrant type figure that his word was law and uh, and the crown just simply couldn't have that. Uh, mm. What's your understanding of all this? Um, I think I think the allegations are somewhat true, but it's like taking the worst the worst reading of Quechua's power and the Zulu legal system. It's it's saying okay, these things did happen. Said. There were clashes between the Zulus and, say, Boer settlers in particular along the borders. But it was never the Zulus never masters an army to do this. And yes, there are impetuous young warriors and uh, tribal leaders who, you know, want to make a bit of a name for themselves within the court of Quechua. So they're 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 doing their own little preemptive raid to say, "See, I'm a great warrior. I can I can take responsibility." So there is that. But this is all stuff that could have been negotiated and this is all stuff that could um have been dissipated but free is not that's not his grand vision his grand vision is this dominion of south africa and so he's taking the worst reading of what the zulu are doing and just using that as the pretext so that when the colonial office does come calling and saying what are you doing he said well these are the reasons this is what i'm this is mm. why i'm doing this mm. <laughs> so yeah. he's got his He's got his get out clause. He needed to be able to point to something at, at the very least, yeah. right? Um, so, where we get into this here, uh, there are two famous films. There's yes. the film Zulu with Michael Caine, mm. uh, which we will talk all about uh, probably in yeah. a bit after we talk about the. Yeah, we the, did the, the history. Um, and there's, but there's the other film, Zulu Dawn, uh, mm. which came out not uh, it was, it was quite soon. Uh, before, it was I 1978. Think? Right. Okay. So, so that's 14 years. Right. Right. Um, now in Zulu Dawn, with uh, Peter O'Toole plays Chelmsford, it's got Bert, Bert Lancaster in it. It's a good film. It's worth watching. I think. Is it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I quite like Zulu Dawn. I rewatched it. I rewatched both films actually in preparation for this. But um, mm. 
I'd forgotten how good Zulu Dawn was. Anyway, <clears throat> in that, um, you do actually uh, see that um, a lot of the a lot of the sort of British settlers in Natal, um, they they sort of knew that it was essentially trumped up charges against the Zulu, although the Zulu hadn't uh, hadn't been you know absolutely perfect neighbours. They hadn't really done anything to sort of bring down uh, the the whole British army on their heads. Uh, but one thing you do see, catch away, you say, is that you know, th in the most general sense, this idea that you know you have your laws in your colony, in your mm. bit of land, and I'll have my laws, and you, you sort of it's difficult to argue with that, really. Uh, you know, e even though, as far as we're concerned, it might be a type of unbridled law where you know extrajudicial killings go on. But I mean, what do you think about that argument that it's you know it's their land, it's their culture, they're sort of, they should be free, at least within reason, to do what they want. You know, he, he's not sort of you know going around impaling tens of thousands of people on a whim because he's insane. Yeah. He wasn't doing anything like that. <clears throat> no, so there's also so just one more quick thing to say, you know, like the example in India where we would see um, sooty, you know, where uh, men would mm -hmm. would uh, burn women folk alive and things like this. And we just said, look, we just we don't care that it's your culture. We're not going to have it. We, we, we hang mm. men that burn women alive. That's the end of the story. So there's that end of the scale of this argument. And the other end of the scale yeah. is let them do what they want. Who are we to tell them what they can or can't do? What are your feelings mm. about that? Well, I, th I think what happens when you look at the empire as a whole, and, and it, it is shifting in some cultures, the British just go, we're, just not, we're not going to interfere. That's what they do. But other, other areas, like um, in particular Borneo and uh, India, the British impose themselves legally and morally. And, I, and when you look at it, I, I think in Borneo it was really to get rid of pirates. The piracy was a huge problem in the South China Sea. So it made sense for the British. You, you, are, you are harboring pirates, which is affecting our trade. Therefore, we're going to impose our law. I think in India, because the British Raj and the co colonists and the administration were so intertwined with Indian society, you are going to have a clash where the two cultures come together. And you know, the British are ultimately responsible and in, in charge. And they, you know, to, in order to make this joint enterprise, as it were, work, the British have to impose their laws and just say, no, that culture, that tradition, that's got to go. And I think a lot of Indians were looking to the British. You know, if you're an Indian widow, you're kind of looking to the British, like, yeah, do something. <laughs> right, yeah. um, and in the end, the tradition wasn't that that missed. I think within a generation, Indians accept. You know, it's uh, we didn't really need this. I think in this case of the Zulu, they are within the British sphere of influence, but they are left alone within that. Zulu Kingdom, um, there's not much interaction. The administration doesn't overlap with the Zulu royal family the, and the politics, apart from missionaries and maybe some traders. There's not that much interaction. There's not that much um, uh, white Europeans going in to Zululand, um, and only in very small numbers. 
So it's a different, you can't use that Indian argument um, in Zululand because, it, because it's, it's doing its own thing. And I think this is what the colonial office in London were thinking, that, you know, that we, we, are the Zulus affecting trade? Trade's always the biggest thing. With the British Empire, it's all about trade. Are they affecting trade? No. Are they bothering our settlers? Not really. Not to any large extent. Okay, leave. You know, leave it. We don't have to impose ourselves where we don't need to be. <coughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Now it seems the way that this the, the Anglo Zulu War of seventy eight seventy nine um, seems to me one of the examples of where we could have. We could have just easily not done that, could have easy, fairly easily avoided it. Uh, again, with going back to other examples of the British Empire where we seem to have got sort of sucked into things. I'm thinking about maybe the reconquest of the Sudan or maybe when we first invaded Sindh in, uh, <laughs> in west, uh, the west of, of India and all things as we sort of, with, without even exactly really meaning to sort of get sucked into it. Or you get one of these political agents like mm. uh, Bartle Freer, who's sort of acting of, on his own initiative, where yeah, he hasn't really got the green light from Parliament or the Colonial Office or the Foreign Office or anything really. Mm. Um, again, I'm thinking of sins there. I'll just go ahead and do it. Um, but well, nevertheless, uh, Bartle Freer says, well, you know, we're going to go into Zululand. It's what I call Clive of India syndrome, where right, yeah, <laughs> Clive yeah. of India is a, is a what is he? He's just a he's an administrator. He just happens to be a, a very talented general, <laughs> but nobody knew that. And then he, under his initiative, we get India in right. the 1750s, in the Seven Years' War. And I think a lot of them, you look at uh, McNaughton in the first Anglo-Afghan um, War, he's got ideas. He's going to be a new Clive of India. So every so often you find one of these guys and they think, I'm going to be the new Clive. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was only one Clive. <laughs> I think we, uh, Britain are involved in Afghanistan at this time as well, the exact same time. Mm. Um, yeah, again, in India, just m to mention Arthur, Arthur Wellesley, um, you know, or the Wellesley brothers, rather, uh, yeah. uh, Richard, his elder brother, saying, you know, we really sort of, we kind of have to put down this thing here or there, um, you know, uh, Seringapatam or up in Pune, and sort of suddenly you find yourself, oh, oh, I'm accidentally... <laughs> Controlling a massive <laughs> swathes of India without even without, without even having a grand design to do that. Um, yeah, you just, I just wanted to put down a revolt on the border, and then this has to happen. Whereas with Zululand, yeah, whereas with Zululand, yeah, there wasn't sort of there wasn't like a, a pressing. It didn't seem doesn't seem to me like there was a pressing need to do that. Um, but there, there you go, um, there you go. So. We probably could lay a lot of the blame at Sir uh, Henry Bartle Freer's feet at this one. Um, uh, well, so uh, let, let's and Chelmsford as well because uh, well, Chelmsford's yeah, a willing yeah. accomplice. No, oh, yeah, no, absolutely, no, absolutely. Um, so, so let's uh, let's push on into the details. So they do cross mm. the they cross the border from the Tau mm. into Zululand, crossing the, uh, the the Buffalo River there, and I'll put up maps again so people can see. Just on our side of the border, it's. Uh, it's by the mountains, the, the Drakensberg Mountains. Um, so on, just on our side of the border is a little missionary outpost at Rourke's Drift. 
uh, mm. which we will come back to because that's what, yeah. if, if anyone knows, everyone should know. <laughs> in the events of the film Zulu with Michael Caine uh, uh, focus around that, but we'll come back to that in a bit. Uh, because before that, we've got sort of the, the big event, uh, Isindawana. Um, mm. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Um, so, so Chelmsford marches across the border, and what has he got? He's got a few thousand men, sort of, uh, uh, well, it's the 24th Regiment, isn't it? A Welsh regiment. Yeah, um, he's got two battalions of those, um, and most of the forces, more than half the forces, are made up of something called a Natal Native Contingent. Uh, which is a, a mixture of uh, kind of part-time volunteer boar, f- uh, boar farmers and landowners um, and also, um, well, mostly Bantus, Bantu Africans. And um, so Chelmsford, that, that's pretty much his force. And then he's got other ones. He's got a few engineers. He's got a little bit of artillery, raw artillery um, and the logistics and the medical corps. Um, and he divides the army, his army forces up into three columns. And this is the controversial part. That he's, he, he wants to get to Alundi, the capital of the Zulu kingdom. Um, but he decides he's going to approach it from th- in three columns because they're not quite sure where the Zulu army is going to be. So the idea is pretty, pretty much like... Um, a little bit Napoleonic in concept that you'd have these corps, these three different forces moving. One would make contact and then the other two would kind of swing into action. But it doesn't quite work out that way. Yeah. So uh, I think also it's also got some some rocket detachments. I know there's some, ro- some guys yes, with rockets. Does. It's strange, isn't it? It's, uh, it's very sort of 19th century. And uh, I think it's, uh, there's some uh, mounted uh, Natal police as well. Are there, but anyway, he's got in the order of uh, what is it? I think four or five thousand guys in total. Mm. Um, and he does that classic thing, so he marches across the border, marches across the Buffalo River, comes up to this, and it's a big open, the open uh, uh, countryside of, of South Africa there. Uh, and there's a, 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 a small hill, uh, which is uh, Isindawana, Isandawana, uh, that's what the South Africa the Zulus call it. Uh, some some of the men thought it looked very very vaguely like the outline of the Sphinx, so they called mm. it the Sphinx. Um, and actually, that regiment, the twenty fourth, um, had been in Egypt, you know, sort of sixty seventy odd years before fighting Napoleon, and one of their badges had the Sphinx on it, so they knew it very well. Anyway, they called it the Sphinx. And Chelmsford makes sort of a, a, a schoolboy arrow, doesn't he? To, to, to split his forces, as you mentioned there, making well, two or even three one columns. one of the columns again. Right, okay. So... And that's a classic um, error, isn't it? You're told sort of, yeah. you know, one of, one of the things you never do is if you're in enemy territory, if you don't need to, don't split your forces up. That's sort mm. of almost a golden rule. Sorry, go ahead. As I said, the, the early part of the campaign is marked by dodgy reconnaissance on the part of the British. This is the, the one area of service that really lets them down in the early part of the war. So he sends his scouts off um, as the th- to, in order to report back where the main Zulu army is so the three columns can converge. And what happens is that one of these scouts um, spots a sizable Zulu force off to the east. And so they report back saying the Zulu army's to the east. Um, but then 
the next group of scouts, they, they climb a hill. I'm not sure if it's the Sandwana hill, but they climb a hill in the region and they see some dust and stuff, but they can't see what turns out to be the main Zulu army. They just don't spot it. So Chelmsford says to, um, to the 1st Battalion of the 24th, um, you stay here. I'm going to ride off east to try and find this main Zulu army, and then I'll call, send for you once we've pinned it down. So he takes, again, he has his army in three columns. I can't remember if it's the number two or the number three column he's personally responsible for, but he splits that again and goes off east to find this Zulu army, which the scouts are telling him are the main Zulu army, but it's not. Right. It's yeah. actually, it's like, the Zulus can do Napoleonic tactics as well, and that is the decoy force mm. to pin the British into position while mm. they move, maneuver their main army. And this is precisely what happens. Chelmsford, with half of his men, have gone east, and then they find out it's a decoy, mm. but it's too late. The main mm. Zulu army, about 30,000, are now onto 1,500 British soldiers left in command of the chief logistics officer, mm. uh, a Colonel Pulley, mm. who's never held a, a, a field combat command ever. He is, he's a great organiser. You know, you want the supplies from A to B, you want the camps there, you want everybody fed, supplied. He's your man. Mm. Mm. But he's not a... He, he's just inexperienced. And he, he has his... He has his forces to kind of spread out. He's put pickets here, pickets there, spread things out to cover all bases. And, mm. you know, the military axiom, he who defends everything defends nothing. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.